Westmount, we continue, and it behoove me not to mention, or just maybe allow me to be charismatic for just a moment, what energy in this place today. You're raring to go, aren't you? <laughs> I am too. What a season. You know, I have to mention, first of all, it's just so good to be back. I, I say this every summer. It's good to go away, needed, recharged. It is best to be back. This is home and nowhere else myself and my family want to be. We're ready to go. You know, many of you have already enjoyed a class on that balcony there. What a, what a summer of getting that done. And of course, have to say huge thank you, Glenn and his leadership with Glenn Bottomley as well, Glenn Eagleson and Jeremy Boyd, John Webb. The work they did out there isn't that fantastic, that patio. Let's at least acknowledge the hard work they put in. Man. You know, I could go on and on, not to itemize the bricks and mortar that God has done here, but I do want to comment as we open up God's word, the spiritual renewal and preparation. I have never seen anything like this. Um, Ready to go. I mean, you are hungry. Cannot keep up with the readiness for the word of God. And let's do that. Let's take Romans now. Let's open it to chapter 8, the mountain peak, the Everest. This is where we're at. Romans chapter 8, where we left off this spring and where we'll be for the next few weeks as we finish this chapter. What a joy to be shot back into the fall with Romans 8. Beloved, as you're turning there, just want to remind you that this world is a world where beauty fades and strength withers. Some of us know that, right, only too well with each passing year. And that's because everything in this world, mark it, everything in this world decays. Loved ones, this world is a dying world. It's dying. Could make a comment about our efforts trying to hang on to this world. It speaks for itself. This world is dying. To the majority, that truth fuels a life in this world that is driven by hopelessness. You know the mantra This life is all there is. Thus, all there is really, imagine this is your ceiling and your terminus, is decay, disease, disaster, and death. Imagine living under that ceiling. But many do. But to a precious few, however, the truth that this world is a dying world is the truth that sets the table. And mark this, one of the many Wonderful, blessed paradoxes, it would seem, of Christianity. The truth sets the table for a life filled with hopeful expectation. And the onlooker says, how could that be? Look around, everything is dying. But it's that precious few, the redeemed, that know that while this world is dying, while it's death-stained, death-ridden, it's a dying world that will one day be renewed. What a joy to sing that this morning, right? To hear Daryl Read Isaiah 65. A a world that is looking forward to the transformation to glory. More, the precious redeemed know while our own bodies partake in that decay, these mortal vessels will one day too be renewed and transformed to glory. Here at church, renewed, glorified bodies on a renewed, glorified earth. That, beloved, is the glory that is to be revealed. 
As we return to Romans this morning, let's be reminded how this is possible. This letter, look down at it, it's open in front of you. I want you to think back to a year ago, this very day, presented to us the gospel of God, chapter 1, verse 1. Specifically, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of God, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew, then Greek. This letter has covered first mankind's need for such salvation. Remember chapter 1. Remember, we are by nature suppressors of truth. That's who we are in our DNA, as such handed over, given up to ourselves. Thus all humanity hell-bound, incapable of self-salvation. We are naturally hopeless. In chapter 2, we learn that some humanity feign and fake it in this life. Recall the moralists. The decent actors, the legalists, like the Jews, doing law works. However, as we learned, neither the decent actors or law workers will be okay. This letter has taught us, think of chapter 3, that what? None are right for God. Naturally, all of us are unfit. There's none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, verse 10. None means none. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 3, verse 23. All humanity falls short, is totally depraved, and thus in need of salvation. That was all bad news. But then as we turned in chapter 4, we saw good news. That one could be made right with God, not through decency or self or works, but by faith. Faith like Abraham. Faith in the word. Faith in the work of God. Faith that was faith counted to one like Abraham as righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 22. Now we learned also this was not just token belief in God like many profess today. Oh yes, I believe in God. This was belief that contains this salient conviction. Chapters 1 to 3. That we can do nothing and we are nothing absent Christ. But believe in the only one that could do anything. That same Christ and who did everything as we remember just now. Jesus Christ, the new Adam. We studied him in chapter 5. Jesus Christ in his new humanity. Jesus Christ, in him we have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. New representation. Praise God, Christian, you have a new head. Saving faith believes that Christ took on our sin and imputed righteousness to us. Faith that saves is faith that believes this. Chapter 5, verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's it. The great exchange. That is the basis and content of our great salvation. And our great salvation, of course, gives way, as we've seen in this letter, to our great sanctification. Chapter 6. After the opening five chapters where the apostle outlined justification justification's need, which is because of our nature. And he outlined justification's source, we just mentioned, in Christ. Paul logically steers to matters that flow out of the reality of Christian, our new position in Jesus Christ, and how that is lived out. And that process, biblically, is known as sanctification. Being progressively set apart. We're positionally placed, but that is lived out as we conform to Christ. In chapter 6, we looked at the ownership transfer. Remember that? From sin to righteousness. You were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. You remain a slave, but a new master. 
In chapter 7, we looked at the struggle. You're out of Adam, but still with a piece of Adam. And then this past spring, we arrived and opened Romans 8, which is open in front of you. And this spring, we looked at the first half of this chapter. And remember with me, we studied three foundations of our sanctification. That's where we left off in this letter. First, chapter 8, verse 1, sanctification is life in Christ. It is Christ who took our condemnation. God didn't just turn his face away in one sense. Sin needed to be dealt with. And your position in Christ is because someone took it on. The Christ took on what you were due. Secondly, then, sanctification is life in the Spirit. Flowing out of that, the Spirit sets our minds rightly. We think rightly now because of a new mind, verses 5 to 11. And then we learn sanctification is life with the Father. This truth, chapter 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Westmount, to be sanctified is to be a child of God. And to be a child of God means this, verse 17, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There it is. So let's put it all together now after that review. Listen again to verse 17 carefully. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Beloved, here's your compass point for the next few weeks. And it's true of your life in Christianity. The path to glory is through suffering. You see that? The path to glory is through suffering. There's no shortcut. Can I get a glorious path to glory? No. Can I get an easy path to glory? No. If you follow Christ, the path to glory is through suffering. Always, every time, and I need to add this morning, only. As it was for Jesus, so too the ones that follow Jesus. As it was for Christ, so too the Christian. The path to glory is through suffering. That is how the redeemed have hope in this suffering-stained world, because they know Where this leads, this suffering is not the ceiling. That's why we have hope. The Christian, and only the Christian, knows that suffering in this present creation, here's the glory, is only a leg of a greater journey to glory. The glory that is to be revealed. Let's pick that back up now and begin the next section, starting in verse 18. Look at it with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, 
because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would take this text, that we would see it rightly, clearly, thoroughly. We would understand it and receive it. Plant it deep so that we can live it out. For our good and your glory, we pray. Amen. Westmont, we are embarking, and I pray you grab this as we read that text, on one of the richest portions of Scripture. This doesn't happen very often. This is sweet, sweet glory right here. We are indeed at the pinnacle of the highest mountain. This is the heart of chapter 8 right here, these verses, right up to 30 and even beyond, one could say. So how can we skim this? I think you would realize that. How can we give light touches to such profound truth? We cannot, right? We cannot do that. You live on a suffering earth, often with much suffering yourself. Christian, you and I need to be reminded of why we have hope, and here it is. This is it. We don't dare go quickly. Look at verse 18. This serves as a thesis statement. Let me submit to you for this next section, verse 18. This is what hangs over the whole thing. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and we know that, don't we, beloved? Are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What a truth. That is a statement of contrast. Paul contrasts the sufferings and the glory. The sufferings of this present time. Now, by the way, which are all the ails that cause suffering. This is disease and decay. This is evil in all variety of expressions. This is death. This is, by the way, and I do need to mention this, many people ask about this in our present age, say, well, how is that different to persecutions? This, what Paul is talking about, is much more broad than persecutions. Persecutions, and here it is, is specific evil targeted to Christians. I think we're going to see this morning, suffering broadly that we all experience, even the unbeliever, is a product of the curse, and we're going to look at that more in a moment. That's the difference. So Paul pulls it back to look at the sufferings, the overall, as we'll see, curse resulting ails of this age. The context will also demonstrate this, by the way, that Paul is talking about suffering more broadly. So this present right now suffering, the apostle says, is not worthy of a comparison, which is an astonishing statement. More on that in a moment. But first we would say comparison to what? What is he comparing it to? Because suffering is great, right? Well, look again. He says, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering is manifest now to us, friends, in us. But that suffering is not even worthy of comparison when we consider the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the simple comparison. We need to get a hold of this. Now, for you, Christian, if you're here and in Christ this morning... And your suffering is actually of greater consideration for you, listen, than the glory. And that could be many of us, right? You actually would flip this around and say, you have no idea how I'm suffering. Don't come to me with glory right now, I'm suffering. 
If it is the coming glory that feels so small and of no account to your present suffering, then I would suggest that you need to pay close attention to this text. And Westmont, I will be paying close attention with you. Believe me, I need this first and foremost. Suffering, I have learned with you, has a way of dwarfing everything else out. Is that not true? When we suffer, all of a sudden, the volume goes down to other things and the suffering goes up. Suffering, if we're not careful, here it is, has a way of consuming our consideration. You know what I mean? When you're suffering, sometimes that's all you're thinking about is how much you're suffering. And most dangerous for the Christian then, suffering, if considered out of context, here it is, will impair our sanctification and cause us to lose sight of the coming glory. Right? Thanks be to God then for the providential arrival of this text. We can rejoice together. The Bible says the glory that is to be revealed to us is not only greater than suffering, but look at it, verse 18, it's beyond comparison. It means the coming glory stands alone. Westmount, this is not to downplay our sufferings. We're all suffering this room in different ways. It's not to downplay them. And you know we don't do that. Our sufferings have all different stripes in this room. They're unique and they're real and they're hard. But what the Word of God is saying objectively is that they need to be considered, all of our sufferings, in the context of, here it is, the coming glory to be revealed. And to do that, Paul's canvas is broad. It is, verse 19, the creation. And to be clear, to start this morning, by creation, what does he mean? He's referring to the entire, as theologians call it, subhuman creation. The irrational part, as they say. What does that mean? Not the higher beings, not the angels and the demons, but the creatures as we recognize them below. The earth, the animals, mountains, stars. That creation will be described four ways in these first few verses. That's as far as we'll get this morning. And they will be considered, the creation is considered in the context of suffering and glory. Each one critical for us if we've abandoned and neglected our consideration of glory. This text is critical for us. So let's begin with verse 19 then. The creation's longing. Look at verse 19. Let's look at the creation's longing. It says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For, look at that word, first word in verse 19. We know this now, Westmore, right? Connecting us to verse 18. And what is it doing? It's telling us why. Why the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is important, isn't it? Because that should be the question as you live in this world. Well, that sounds like a great thesis statement. And that's many accusations for you, Christian. Your pie-in-the-sky paradigm that gets you up on Sunday to do things. Why do you have such hope? It's a great question. The apostle, the inerrant word of God, is going to answer that. For this is why. For the creation waits with eager longing. As you will see in these verses, the creation is personified here. We sung that in so many ways this morning, as if it was human. That's the device here, the Word of God. It's a personified, subhuman creation as if it was human. Now, this is not uncommon in God's Word. Psalm 98.8 says, in response to God's Word, let the rivers do what? Note this, clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. 
Isaiah 55, 12, to the one finding the Lord says, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Personification of creation. We see this in God's word. The creation, the cosmic backdrop here, not human, but containing life. It's not languishing, but longing. That's the key. The creation is waiting with eager longing, the text said. Said another way, I love this, the creation is on its tiptoes, with head outstretched, gaze fixed on the horizon. That's your image. You think you're longing for the return of Christ. The creation really is on tiptoes. That's the idea. So let's put it together with verses 17, 18. Listen, whatever the creation is eagerly longing for, is also what is rendering our sufferings worthless by comparison to those who are joint heirs with Christ. Let's follow those dots. The obvious question then, what is the creation eagerly longing for? What is that? You might say, look at verse 19. The revealing of the sons of God. Not the sons of God themselves, see that? But they're revealing. Let's grab a hold of that. It's the revealing, it's the this is who they really are-ness of it. That's the eager longing. Not just that there are some sons of God that will be there in a future time. I want us to see this. It's the revealing of them that here they are. These are the ones. Very, very important here. Who are the sons of God then, you might say? Are they those pre-flood creatures in Genesis 6-4 called the sons of God? Is that who they are? Are they the occupants of the heavenly court in Job 1? I see that expression there too, the sons of God. Remember that when Satan comes in that court? Well, correct Bible reading answers that always in what? First tool, context. Look at Romans 8.14. What does it say? For all who are what? Led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right there in context. Sons of God in Romans 8 are those, as Jerry taught us this morning too, led by the Spirit, the brothers. Verse 12, Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is what is in view. That is who the sons of God are here in our passage. So the creation waits with eager longing then for Christians to be revealed. See that? That's what they're waiting for, that Christians would be revealed. Now I know what you're thinking. Are Christians not revealed now? Right? Wait a minute. Is God not doing a work now? Are Christians not evident now? Well, let me ask you another obvious question this morning. Is Christian identity obvious now? Is it? No, it isn't. To our shame, right? It's absolutely not evident. Is it evident to all? If you go out into the Westmount community, if you go out into Peterborough, if you go out into Canada, North America, and the world, is it really clear who the sons of God are? No, it is not. It's not clear at all. In fact, one could argue it's never been more confusing. Is that not true? It's never been more confusing. Who is really of the Lord? For one, let me give you a few reasons, and these are all self-evident. We live in a creation that contains a lot of so-called decent people, right? Lots of decent people. Subscribing to the accepted morality, putting the right badges on, got to get the, the memes right and the lingo right. Living and doing the right thing. There's lots of those, and we saw that in chapter 2. 
Ask anyone on the streets of such people how they'll make out post-death, and what will they say? I think I'll be just fine. I'm not doing what he's doing. I think I'm going to be just fine. Further, on the outside, if you were just to do a scan on the externals of humanity, we all look the same. You'd say, sons of God. Well, if any kind of alien jury is looking and say, well, they all live, they all get sick, and they all die. They're all the same. On the outside, in this present time, we all look the same, don't we? And we all, in one sense, decay the same physically. So we can be fooled by externals. But on the coming day, status will be revealed. What's more, we live in a creation that contains a lot of professed sons of God, right? You know these. And again, we've referenced them already this morning at the table. They claim sonship, but follow a different father, really and truly. Is that not true? Claiming sonship, but following a different father. This is the group where Judgment Day will be a stark revealing for them. And you have to ask yourself, when you read Matthew 7, 23, who are those people, right? They're the group who will come before the Lord after they die, really sure that they're the Lord's. Holding up lots of works to say, I'm ready. I want to be in line. I'm ready. And the Lord will say what? Depart from me. I never what? Knew you. Do you want to be one of those? I certainly don't. But the world, I would submit to you, is filled with them. Because in the same context, Jesus talks about the narrow way versus the broad way. For those groups, the coming revealing that we talked about already this morning will be a horrifying tragedy indeed. But then true son, true daughter, I want to turn to you here. There will be the revealing for the genuine sons of God. The ones that I heard, my wife and I, singing Psalm 8, it was incredible to be up here to hear you sing Psalm 8. Kind of getting tingly right now. Unbelievable. The chorus of the saints. Wow, won't forget that. You sons, you daughters, the real ones. That's who I'm talking about. It will be the revealing we've always known deep down. But listen, our life in living assaults and beats us down and causes us to question if we'll be there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Will I be that one? It causes you to question and examine. And this is no proud confidence for you. You don't walk around with feathers strutted. I am a Christian and I'm going to be just fine. Just an honest heart examination. But you love your Lord, and you want to be holy, and you're quick to repent. That's what we're talking about. Am I his? Am I his? Charles Cranfield, I've commented on him a few times as he comments on this book. He sums it up, well, listen, believer, be encouraged by this. He says this, I quote, believers are already sons of God in this life of it. But their sonship is veiled, and their disguise is impenetrable except to faith. So good. And then this. Even they themselves have to believe in their sonship against what? Listen to what he says. Against the clamorous evidence of much in their circumstances and condition, which seems to be altogether inconsistent with the reality of it. Amen to that. Christian, you know exactly what he's talking about. Every day it may be. Every day. Oh, brothers and sisters, we know of these clamorous evidences, don't we? Be encouraged and renew your hope today because a revealing day is coming. A day that the creation eagerly longs for. Look at this text. With you, where your identity is revealed. 
There will be no pretending on that day. Isn't that refreshing? There's no pretending. There'll be no doubting on that day. How good is that? There will be no doubting. This is Isaiah 25 stuff. This is the day we've waited for. No wondering, no waiting, no more suffering, no more sin, just revealing. I am his. So good. Listen, present suffering cannot compare to such future glory, can it? Your present suffering compared to this one's mine. Your present suffering compared to this one's mine. Your present suffering compared to this one's mine. How can it compare? It can't. It can't. There's no contest. That's the creation's longing. Lots more here. Next, the creation's subjection. Look with me in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation longs simply because the creation was subjected to futility. The plain meaning is obvious enough here. Creation was subjected to futility. And you say, how was it subjected? When was it subjected? This is, of course, we know this Westmount, Genesis 3. When the first son of God, Adam, fully revealed, failed in his sonship. Remember that. When he sinned, and we covered this in chapter 5 of Romans, he brought down much more. Remember, as head of the human race, all sinned in Adam, guilt acquired in him. And more, when Adam sinned, he brought down all of creation, not just the human race, he brought down all of creation. You say how? Listen to Genesis 3.17, straight from the Lord, the curse. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. That is the futility of curse. The ground, the creation, will not do as it should. By the way, that's the force of the word futility. It wants to do something, it should do something, but it can't. Often we feel that in our bodies, don't we? Should, want to, but can't. It will try, but it won't succeed, and it's that feeling, that impotence, it's the futility here. It will not yield easily. Instead, it will offer up, this is the creation, thorns and thistles. And that's your picture. And we know this vividly after a summer like this, right? It's just automatic. You leave the ground untended to, and it does a great job of producing thorns and thistles on its own. One imagines, gardeners with me, what unmanned, unmaintained gardens look like pre-fall. You ever wonder about that? You don't have to tend to them at all. They just flourish. Beloved, this is the creation subjection, however, the curse that brought futility. And note the text tells us this wasn't willing subjection. Look at it, not willingly, it says, not willingly. Adam's subjection was willing. He was active, he knew, he brought it on himself. And we have to add, just like you and I, right? Every sin is willing subjection, is it not? There is no passive subjection for us, though. Our sin is active, but this is everywhere, is it not? I couldn't help it, or it's not my fault. All over our society, and listen, I won't even do this justice, is the opposite idea that we cannot help our badness. My past, my neighborhood, my mummy, my friend, on and on it goes. Listen, to say Adam is to blame or the cause of the curse is one thing, but it's something else to say that the creation was subjected, note this, by Adam. Adam caused it, 
But he didn't actually bring the curse, did he? Think to Genesis 3 with me right now. If you recall Genesis 3, who cursed the creation? God did, right? Remember, God cursed the creation. And that is exactly what's picked up here. Look at verse 20. The him is God. He subjected it. And more, only God in his sovereign rule and power can work evil toward good. We could add even, only God in his sovereignty has the power to curse the entire universe. Did you think about that? No one else can do that. Only Almighty God can subject and curse creation for the purpose of hope. Verse 20. Now we'll have more to say on that next week, but remember what we said earlier. The path to glory in God's program is always through suffering. Thus God did not curse the earth and subject the creation to futility and then sit around like a dazed parent who does the discipline, wonders, I don't know what to do next, but at least I just knew I had to do that. God is not so absent-minded, just flying off the cuff. Everything, even his discipline and curse, has a purpose. No, he subjected creation to futility, listen, with purpose for the further end goal of renewal, renewal of both man and world. Look at verse 21 as we continue. That the creation itself will be set free. There's the purpose from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is it. That set free you see there is in the passive form telling us the creation can't free itself. So God subjects in church. God sets free. Note this text. God is the only one that can reverse the curse and set the creation free. All of it God. That is universal rule, freeing the creation from the bondage of corruption, verse 21, and freeing the creation to experience again, look at it, the glory of the children of God. And what is that? Imagine renewed earth with a renewed man on it, an earth no longer cursed and with one on it who is perfect, a renewed earth with renewed creatures. Remember Genesis 1, same as Isaiah 65. And next week, we'll have more on that renewed man part. That's what's in view here. The coming together of those two pieces. Now, one last comment is needed on these verses before we move too quickly here. You hear an awful lot these days, do you not, about saving the planet with lots of laws being made and so on. Do you not? I mean, I feel like there's a new law every day, a new tax and a new law to save the planet. And Christians, above all people, understand. I want you to understand this. Please leave rightly hearing. We are called to steward this earth, are we not? To be responsible. And and you know, that's just simple logic. Don't litter, be sensible, care for your environment. Of course, we as Christians should be the first doing that. However, and let's be crystal clear on this, this verse enlightens us. God subjected creation. God cursed it as such only he can reverse and renew it. Is that not true? We cannot. I agree with the bumper sticker. There is no planet B, but that doesn't mean we can save this one, right? As well intended as some with zeal for our planet are, they're utterly helpless in stopping the cursed results that continue to seep throughout the creation. Is that not true? You can't stop it. The earth will continue to decay and deteriorate, and we're powerless against it. Beloved, God cursed it. God cursed it in his subjection. However, note this, he subjected it in hope. I could add more. This one thing always turns ahead, doesn't it? Natural resources are a good thing. 
God put them into the earth for us to extract. Paper straws are a bad thing. But natural, natural resources are a good thing, right? Amen to that. Christian, listen, think critically. Use wisely. Consider the only one that can renew. Consider, he's the only one. Rather than pretend we can save the planet, oh, the self-righteousness, we'll be the generation to save this globe. No, we should instead be concerned, and here it is, if we're being truthful with this generation, we need to be concerned with the one who can save your soul and planet and universe and cosmos. Listen, our call is not to recycle everything. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's not our call. Our call is to repent, Luke 13, 1 to 5. Jesus said, washing through all of the horizontal stuff. said, listen, all these things happen to the earth, but you need to repent before the final renewal comes so that when the planet is saved, and praise God, it will be, Jesus says, here's the question, will your soul be on it? Come to me about with falling towers and what Pilate's done. Will your soul be on it? And beloved, I turn to you this morning. Is that true of you? We've had a lot of ministry of the word this morning. We've sung it about renewal. Feeling really good about the things to come. This earth is dying. It will be renewed. But I ask you this morning, are you going to be on that renewed earth? Are you going to be? Do you take it for granted? Do you never examine yourself? I do an honest heart reflection as this new ministry year starts and say, am I going to be there? Will I have stake in the renewed earth that's coming? That's the question. That is the question. And that's creation subjection. A few minutes for a short last point, verse 22. Look at it with me. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know, groaning, look at that word. It's one of those words that doesn't need an explanation, does it? I don't need to give you all of the... You know, the history of groaning, and all, it just speaks for itself. Groaning is groaning. You know what it sounds like, and you know why you do it. Now, it's true, groaning in a spoiled little child is different to this, but the idea is still the same here. The action is the same. This is ongoing angst for something, and it doesn't stop. It's an internal desire that bubbles out into an audible moan. That's what groaning is. We know that. And closing the picture here is one that the Bible reader is very familiar with. Look at it. The pains of childbirth. The groans associated with the pains of childbirth. The groaning of birth pains. That's the enduring moan. But that groan, and here's the picture, suffering to glory. The groan gives way to the birth child. Jenna experienced this. If you haven't considered Sadie on the side there, you need to do that and see her. A production, although I believe Jenna two hours of it, of groaning, the produced baby. Same with Jen. Emma groans difficult birth pains that will produce what? Glory. That's the picture woven into creation. We're blessed to experience that thrice over the year here. Church, the pains of childbirth is Scripture's repeated motif for, listen, storm before the calm for salvation through judgment, for depicting suffering that leads to glory. That's the picture from Deuteronomy 4.30 to Micah 4.10 to Mark 13.8, consistent picture. It's an enduring moan waiting in hope. That's the creation's groan. And now listen, this sets us up for next week. 
This suffering to glory is not just for God's places. It is that. Jerusalem, mountains, planet earth, but it's more. Suffering to glory is the path God designed for his people, you and I as well. Turn to John 16 as we close. Context, again, needs little introduction. On the night he was betrayed is the context in the upper room. Jesus delivering some very specific instructions to the apostles that would go and deliver this to others. Let's pick it up in verse 16. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. You can imagine the disciples here. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? You see this throughout the upper room discourse. What is he saying? Jesus continues to explain, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me because I'm going to the Father. That's what they're not understanding. So Jesus, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So here it is, verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, and here's his explanation. Listen, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, look at this. You will weep and lament objective truth. Do you see that? You will weep. You will lament. That's all of us followers of Jesus. But the world will rejoice. Now, are we not seeing that? You will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. Bang on prophecy from Jesus. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, but here it is, capture the hinge, will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. In other words, there's pain ahead, right? But when she's delivered the baby, that's the terminus. She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Do you see that? The groans give way to glory. So also you have sorrow now. This is the picture Jesus gives. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, look at it again, verse 22, you will have sorrow now, you will groan, you will suffer, but a day is coming when your hearts will rejoice because, says Jesus, I will see you again. And that, by the way, the seeing you again, the glory of that, he expounds in chapter 17 with his high priestly prayer. It's exactly what it is. And look at the end of verse 22, no one will take your joy from you. Christian, maybe people take your joy now. It is true. I am certainly with you in that. People take your joy right now. Maybe suffering is not only a given, but it's always a given, right? Maybe that's true of you. But Jesus says, let's land on this. One day, the longing is fulfilled. One day, the subjection to futility over. One day, the groaning gives way to birth. One day, the temporal suffering will turn into eternal joy. Do you believe that? That one day there will be the glory that is to be revealed. Do you believe that? The sands of time keep sinking toward that day. Every day they keep sinking closer and closer to that day. And we wait, Christian. This is our joy as we launch back into Romans. We wait for that day in eager hope. Eager hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, indeed, that eager hope that comes only from you. We cannot muster such things up on our own. It is only from you. So we thank you for it. 
And Father, we pray that we can now go out and live in light of that truth. Father, so much that we've studied this morning and so much yet to study. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.